Our Lord, we thank you that uh, in Christ we have all things. All the promises of God are yes and amen in our Lord Jesus. We ask now that as we come to your word, you would open our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts to have faith, to know the extent, the uh, magnitude, the beauty of all your promises to us, and how they are secured for us in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Lord, uh, be our teacher now. We need you to enlighten our minds to understand your word, so send your spirit to be our teacher. And we thank you that you've given us your word, that uh, you have revealed yourself to us. So come and join us now as we open your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, just a few verses, verses 3 through 5. And it's printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Thanks be to God. So uh, this past week I was reading a little excerpt from a book on it's about time, and uh, it was actually on a friend's blog. He put a little blurb about it, and, and he's talking about how you know you think about time as like a, a string, and we're kind of moving along, a little crossbar moving along on on this string is the present. And this uh, he he puts it this way: the present is but the moving edge between the past and the future, and in some sense the present barely exists. So it's kind of an interesting thought that if you think of time as a string, you know, the present is just like this little, oh, right, now, now, it's right, it's just this little thing right there. And you, it's gone, it's gone, just like that. And, uh, and the past is this massive, huge, sealed in stone event, and the future is uh, all these infinite possibilities. So you think of this string, we're living in this tiny infinitesimal moment that's crammed together by everything that's happened in the past, everything that happens in the future. In fact, every the decisions that we make are basically shaped by these two masses, the past and the future, kind of cramming in on us. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do right now? And, uh, you know, that's not a bad thing. Um, I, I actually had a friend when I was living in St. Louis who, um, I think, uh, he, he had a lot of uh, social problems. He didn't know how to just kind of talk to people and relate to people. And... Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he, he actually suffered some fairly severe abuse when he was a child. And uh, I was in a small Bible study with him, and during the small group there was this period where we were going to each uh, tell our testimony, tell our life story. And when it came time for him to tell his life story, he said that he had no memory of basically before he was 12. He was basically just totally blacked out. He said, I, I, I have no idea. And I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that probably something severe happened to him then. And oftentimes what will happen is our brains, will, if, if we've endured something deeply traumatic, deeply abusive or hurtful, we'll just black out huge periods of our life we can't even remember. And what happens is, you learned a lot of th- he learned a lot of things in the first 12 years of his life. He had a lot of interactions with people, and, and, but his brain has blocked that out so he doesn't have access to it. He doesn't know how to, how do I talk to people? I, I, I don't have what I learned in those first 12 years, you know, so like for me, I, when I was 10 or 11, I, I remember I was sitting 
watching a Little League game. My friend was playing a Little League game. I happened to be sitting next to this girl who's very popular, and she happened to be going out with a friend of mine I'd never talked to her in my life. And, and she said to me, oh, hi, Nate. Are you, so are you going to Nick's birthday party uh, tonight? And just as I said, yeah, are you? This big bunch of spit flew out of my mouth on her exposed leg. She's wearing shorts. And she said, oh, you spit all over my leg. And I was Okay, see ya. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's an experience that's in my past. And so and for the rest of junior high and high school, whenever I'm talking to a girl, I'm swallowing all of the saliva in my mouth, making sure it's dry, that I'm not going to spit up something on her. So the past taught me how to live in the moment, right? It me, and if you don't have that, you need that, right? And then actually, you know, the future works same way. People talk about self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Whatever you're seeing happening in the future is going to determine what you do in this moment. So it's like this infinitesimal moment of the now is being crammed together by these huge masses, these influences of the past and the future. So that's why as we, uh, as we come to the beginning of this letter about the Christian and the crucible, how do you, how do you live as, as God's people? How do you be faithful to God in the midst of trials? How do you live now and be faithful? Um, Peter is going to give these Christians hope. He's going to talk about hope, and he's going to talk about hope in their past, hope in the present, and hope in the future. He's going to span all that. You, you need it all there. And so you can see that. Let's, if we just uh, look at this passage again together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his abundant mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the present. We've been born again. We have a new life now. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's something that happened in the past. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's looking at the future. He's got the whole thing. The whole string is is summed up there. And so what what he knows is that we're so deeply shaped by the past and the future. That if we're going to live, he needs to shape those for us. And that what God does, he actually gives us a new past. He gives something in our past to define us now. And he gives us a new future to define how we're going to live now. So we're going to kind of, uh, as we look at this letter, how do you endure trials? Peter begins by forcing us to ask three questions. The first is, um, what happened in the past? What happened? Secondly, what does what happened in the past mean for the future? And third, how do those things shape how we live now? Okay, what happened in the past? What does it mean for the future? And how does that shape how we live now? Okay, so first, what happened in the past? Now, most people, when they think about religion or spirituality or questions about God or life after death, we see it as a very speculative kind of endeavor. You know, I picture a bunch of guys sitting around a fire, drinking beer, scratching... So, you know, do you, do you believe in angels? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do believe in angels. Why? Yeah, why? I, I just think, they, I think they're probably there. I don't know. And, I mean, it's a very different, you know, you can't see anything. You can't see God. You can't see the afterlife. You have no access to it. It's basically whatever you want. You know, no, no one can say you're wrong. So just tell, what does your gut say? Go with it. And, uh, you know, it's very different than maybe scientific kind of knowledge. We think of, you know, you can, you can choose to believe in angels or not believe in angels, whatever you want. But gravity, you've got to believe, you know, gravity on Earth 
mass times 9.8 meters per second squared. You don't get to choose whether you believe in that or not. It's, that's the way it is, right? That's the way the world is. You don't have a choice. But, uh, you know, religion is more, I think of it kind of like this. Uh, you have some, since we're talking about junior high boys, talking about girls, uh, you have a bunch of junior high boys sitting in a cafeteria, and one of them's name's Bobby Johnson. Bobby Johnson says, you know, guys, I'm pretty sure that Sandra Jane over there, she, she's in love with me. I'm pretty sure of it. And, uh, and they say, well, how do you know that? Well, we were walking down the, we were walking down the hall and our arms brushed. And I felt an electric something. Something was there. And so I think she's like, actually, we were in PE, and I saw her kind of look in my direction. I'm pretty sure she was looking in my eyes. And, and I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And now, obviously, actually asking her is not an option. So access, access to what she's thinking is not an option. So they're sitting in a group speculating. What do you think? What do you think? Well, we're never really going to know whether she likes us or not. And so that, that's basically how we think of religion. You know, we have certain uh, emotions. I, you know, I felt God's presence. Um, someone talked about seeing a light when they died. And um, we have certain rituals that kind of connect us. But we're all basically just floundering around trying to find out how do I, how do I get in touch with what's out there, whatever, the nether, the nether world. How do we get in touch with it? Now, um, but now imagine these junior high boys are sitting there having this conversation. They're like, no, she doesn't love you. Yeah, she does love you. And all of a sudden, Sandra Jane walks over. And she comes up and she says, Billy Johnson, I would be obliged if you would take me out to the milkshake after school. And all of a sudden, what happens to the discussion? What happens to the speculating? It's over. No more, there's no more questions. There's no more, they're not going to say, well, I don't care, you know, did she look at you? She just said, she's revealed herself. And the discussion's over. And the only thing that's left is for Billy Johnson to say, well, do I want to go on the date. You know, he might not have prepared himself that going on a date was actually a possibility. So, but now, really the choice is, am I going to buy into this? And so, you know, when we look at this passage, Peter begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And according, according to the first the early Christians, they said, you know, we've been born again. We've found new life. We've come alive in a new way. There's this new kind of life happening in humanity. And they did not say, you never see them saying, we, I had a spiritual experience with God. And he says, you know, let's, and we, we'd all get along a lot better if we just loved each other. And let's, let's forgive people. They never say that. They say, Jesus' body rose from the dead in history. An event happened. That's what we're talking about. I'm not saying that I'm speculating about something. It's not, it's not them swimming through their emotions and their philosophy trying to get up to God somewhere. It's God coming down into real life, kind of like gravity. Real life, you can't, you can't not believe in gravity. It's real life, concrete, God doing something. God showing, this is what I'm up to. I am raising dead people and bringing them to an indestructible bodily life. That's that's it's an event. It's concrete, and so it's kind of like it's kind of like Sandra Jane coming up and saying, "This is this is what I I like you. I want to have a milkshake with you." That's what the res- that's what the early Christians said is happening, and so the speculating is over now. So that leaves us with the question, you know, most people would say, "Okay, yeah, all right, if that's true, if the resurrection happened, I guess we're, we can't speculate." Um, you know that that's clearly a, a, the act of God that a body is living forever. 
But, I mean, aren't you speculating about the resurrection? I mean, in the same way that you're guessing about angels, aren't you guessing about whether Jesus rose from the dead? Can you just decide? Do I believe that he was risen from the dead or I don't? I mean, we don't really know what happened 2,000 years ago. Well, I, let me just take a brief period of time to say why the resurrection of Jesus Christ in history, his body coming back to life, is one of the most credible events in antiquity. Okay? From a historical perspective. So first... Let me just talk a little bit about uh, the Bible gives accounts uh, where eyewitnesses say this is what we saw happen when Jesus' body rose from the dead. And what's interesting in those accounts is there are these little clues in there that tell us that these accounts were written very early. Let me give you an example. When you read the accounts, uh, the, the people who first meet Jesus after he's risen from the dead are women. And you, we might not think, well, what's the big deal with women? But in the first century, if you were going to, 100 years later, say, I'm going to make up a story about Jesus' body rising from the dead. Uh, women's testimony was not credible in, in a court of law. So there's no way that you'd say, well, we'll pencil in some women who, who know, I mean, we believe in women, but they didn't get that yet, okay? So, uh, so clearly, this is not a forgery. Why would you put women in if you're writing it 100 years later or 50 years later and it had nothing to do with real events? Secondly, there's a strange thing. When you read the resurrection accounts in the Gospels about Jesus, it says that his body is kind of trans- transformed. There's these strange things that happen. So he'll meet a couple of disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus and they've been walking with him. They know him and they don't even recognize him. And then finally they get back and he's talking about the Bible and they... He breaks bread like we're going to do with them, and all of a sudden their eyes are open. They say, "Oh, it's Jesus!" I recognize it. He said, "What? Well, you didn't get him before. Now you get." There's something physical about him that they didn't recognize. And um, and you know, there's other places where it says that the doors are locked, and the disciples are all in this locked room, and all of a sudden Jesus is there. You know, he walks through the wall, or we don't know how he got there, but somehow he's there. They say, "Whoa, where'd you come from? You stuck us. And so uh, now, okay, Jesus' body is transformed it's different what's strange about that well if you were a Jew and you were going to write a story about someone rising from the dead and you wanted people to believe it what you would do is you go to the Old Testament and see oh look at all these prophecies look at how look at how this fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament right that's what you do if you want to be convincing well the, the Old Testament gives prophecies about how resurrected bodies are going to be transformed Daniel 12 is, a, is probably the most famous one that says we're going to shine like stars and so if you were making up a story about Jesus raising from the dead and his body being transformed, you would, there's no doubt you would say his body, he's shown like a star. There's no evidence of that. The, the, the gospel writers don't say anything about that. In fact, they don't even quote the Old Testament at all. There's no sense in which they're trying to doctor this document. We're going to make it fit into Old Testament prophecies. There's nothing like that. And from plain just historical inquiry, if you come to these documents as an, as an eyewitness account, you say these are very early, undoctored, unfabricated accounts that Jesus really uh, did rise from the dead. And so uh, there's a lot of credibility. Now some people say, okay, um, I understand, you know, they're very early accounts, but maybe the, maybe the disciples were mistaken, you know, maybe they had one of those spiritual experiences you're talking about, uh, maybe they saw his spirit, maybe they had a vision of him. Um, the fact is that uh, in Early Jewish customs, when uh, uh, burial customs, there was two steps to it. So if someone died, what you do is you wrap them up and you put spices in with their body and you put them in a cave 
and you let their body decompose. And so the flesh would decompose and smell, and that's why you have the spices. And then you'd come back later when there was just only bones, and you'd collect the bones together, and you'd store them together. So if the disciples go out and say, Jesus is risen from the dead, you know, he's come back to life. It was a natural thing to go back and see where are the bones. They already, that was already a part of their practice. They would have done that. There's no evidence anywhere that anyone said, oh, we have the bones. So you might say, okay, well, maybe he didn't really die. Maybe he died on the cross, or maybe he was drugged on the cross so he, can, uh, he could endure it and sleep for a little while and then he came back. And you know, that's, you know, you just imagine the disciples coming up to this cave, this guy comes out looking like a zombie, he's lost like four pints of blood and, uh, you know, he's drugged and they're saying, he's conquered death, look at him, you know, he's a zombie, no one's going to say he conquered death. It's impossible. One of the things that we have to realize is that if we, and I'm just giving you a few little snippets of why the resurrection of Jesus is a historical. I mean, these eyewitnesses said that they would die. Uh, you know, that doesn't. You know, a lot of people die for things that are, are not true. But that's another thing. There's tons of pieces of credibility that says Jesus' body rose from the dead. That's what happened in the past. What happened? Is Jesus' body rose to an indestructible life. Now, what that means is that if we're serious, uh, if we are willing to do our homework. Really, the only pot, the only reason to say that I don't believe that that happened in the past is because I just, out of hand, reject that it's possible. I don't, I don't think that it's possible that a body could come back to life before we even start the discussion. I don't even think it's possible. So what you have to understand is that's a choice. You're just making that choice. That's not historical. That's not um, the Bible is a deeply rational document. It's not just an emotional speculation that I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It, it's a historical inquiry. It happened in history. Okay? So now, one of the reasons I say that is, um, is that because, you know, as Christians, one of the things Peter's going to be talking about struggling, they're suffering, they're getting ostracized for being Christians, and you're going to face the question of, like, why am I doing this? Why am I, you know, it's a sunny Sunday morning. Why am I coming every Sunday morning to, to church? Is it, what, if, what if I get to the end of my life, and it turns out I was, we're all speculating about God, and I was just speculating one way, and maybe it's not true. What if I devoted my whole life to this, and I find out at the end, there's all these religions, and wh- who knows if they're true? The resurrection happened. The resurrection is like Sandra Jane coming up and saying, this is, I like you. I, I want to get a milkshake with you. And so... Uh, it's you know every other religion you take some you take Muhammad you take Buddha you take Joseph Smith what did they have they had some spiritual experience where God revealed they revealed God's will there's nothing like a body a historical event rising from the dead and God saying what happened then what I've shown you I can do and I'm willing to do I'm going to do for you and so uh, that's the anchor you know I was talking about at the beginning what's in the past. What is, the, what is in the past that's informing how I live in, in, in the center, how, how I make my decisions in, in the immediate infinitesimal now? This is a concrete event. It happened. It's real. And so it's an anchor that we can rest on. So, but what does it mean? So what? Happened 2,000 years ago? So what? Jesus' body rose from the dead. What does that mean? Well, that leads to our second question. What does it mean for the future? Now, kind of basic Christian faith is... Is, is a very kind of wild, outrageous, but wonderful hope that what God did for Jesus when he rose, raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to do that for all Christians. Raise their bodies to live in God's earth forever. That, that's what Christians... I mean, that's just basic Christian belief. I'm not, that's not like 
Nate's kind of take on it. That's just basic Christians been believing that for centuries, it, that our bodies will live forever in, in God's earth, that God's going to do for us what he did for Jesus. And, um, and whenever we think that that's outrageous, we say, wow, in the future, all these bodies coming back to life, whenever we think, we always have to look back. We look back to the past and say, it's already happened once. That's how I can know. It's, it's not just speculative. It's not wishful thinking. It's already happened once. So that's how I can look to the future. Now, the way that this text describes what it's going to, you know, getting a body raised from the dead to get to live forever in God's world in the presence of God, describes it this way. God has, called, uh, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now the idea of inheritance, that he's using is strong in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, uh, God's people, Israel, they were slaves in Egypt, and Pharaoh had his iron fist on them, and God came in and rescued them, and what did he do? He brought them to the promised land, and everyone got plots of land, and this was their inheritance. You know, uh, they were going to have crops and things like that. You know, I, when I became a Christian, most of us, when we become a Christian, you start reading the New Testament. You start reading about Jesus. And then you go back and you read the Old Testament. And when I did that, I read the New Testament. It's talking about all these big things like eternal life and, uh, you know, heaven and, uh, you know, spiritual things. And then I went to the Old Testament and I said, it's all about they get a piece of land and they get crops, and they get, they're get they going to have a lot of babies. It's this very earthy kind of thing. I was like, what, what's going on here? Why, who cares about all that? I mean, plot of land compared to eternal life is so much bigger. And the problem, I mean, part of the problem is because we read the Bible backwards. <laughs> we don't start with the Old Testament. And I thought I knew what the New Testament was talking about instead of reading the Old Testament, which came first, and letting that tell me what the New Testament means. Because, uh, you know, I'd read a passage like this talking about my inheritance that's undefiled, unperishable, unfading. And I picture myself bouncing around on clouds, you know, in the netherworld, playing a harp, and, you know, forever. And, uh, but what does Jesus say? Jesus knew the Old Testament. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The inheritance is earth. Ground, soil, mountains, rivers, uh, animals, uh, gardens. You know, the inheritance is, uh, is laughing, dancing, bodily existence. And uh, all the deep delights of God, God's good creation. And the way that Peter describes it here is, is that we're going to have a place in God's world that is imperishable, unfading, Undefiled, and you know, I, I was uh, I was talking to Nick and Andy. Some of you know, spent a lot of last month in Italy, and when they got back uh, a couple weeks, a week ago or so, we ran into them in Fairhaven. It was the day after they got back, and they were talking about three weeks they spent in Italy, and they said, "Oh, you know, eating this good food, so fresh, and how the ground, there's beautiful landscapes, and we like this Lake Como, and sitting out there with wine, and, and we're just like, we gotta move here. We could just let's spend a whole life." Here, just that all the little flavors and the sights and sounds is beautiful. I, I could spend my whole life here. And what's amazing, you know, you think of, uh, you know, that, that's how pregnant God's creation is with pleasures and delights. Pure, good delights in His creation, in His earth. You know, they're, they're talking about, I could spend my whole life in just this little piece of land. You know, you look at the globe, it's just a little boot in the, uh, in the Mediterranean. I could spend my whole life there. And you think about, well, what about the rest of Europe? What about 
England and Britain and all of the Americas, all the terrain and the Andes down in South America and Southeast Asia and all the, you think of all these little nooks and crannies and pleasures and joys, God has charged all of those places with his pleasures, his goodness, his delight. They're just loaded with it. And they're like, I can spend my whole life in Italy. I need endless lifetimes to just taste God's goodness. I need to just drink it in. I need endless, endless lifetimes. That is precisely what Peter, at the beginning of this letter, is saying to these Christians, that is what's in your future. God didn't make all those delights and pleasures for nothing. He wants us to enjoy them. And he's, uh, that's where we're going. And so, uh, you know, they come back from their three-week vacation, and they say, oh, you know, it was just a taste. You know, I, I was just walking home yesterday, it was beautiful blue sky, and uh, I was looking up, and I don't know if you feel this way, anytime I look at the sky, I'm kind of awed at it, and I just, like, I want to jump in it, or splash it on my face, or something, like, drink it. I just want to, like, this, there's this sense that there's some deep beauty in the sky that I just want to, I want to grab hold of it, I want to, and I can't get it. I just get a little hint, a little echo of it when I'm looking at this guy. And they go to Italy and say, we just got a little hint, a little echo. And what he's saying is because the, the, the joys that we have here, as, as Peter says, they're, they're perishable, they're defiled, they're fading. They fade away. You only get a little hint of it. Or someone comes in and their sin messes it up. Or, uh, you know, relationships break apart. And what Peter says is that God has made us for a joy that is complete. It's full. It's unfading. It's not. It's going to be. It's going to charge every every nerve of our body. Actually, you know, the Bible says that what God's going to do is that N.T. Wright puts it this way: that, that the world is like this beautiful chalice with all these gems, and it's wonderful. And uh, just like you fill a chalice with wine, God is going to take the universe, this creation, it's like a chalice, and He's going to pour Himself into it. And so that not only are we going to be not speculating about God, but every nerve of our body, as we taste all the goodness of God, it's going to be, He's going to be there too. The completion of all joy. That is huge. So what we have is that God, what's in our past and future? God has anchored our past, rock solid, historical event. Jesus' body is risen from the dead. And He's exploded our future. Exploded it. I mean, you couldn't have thought of that. Tell me a good future. You could not have made that up. A world full of God's presence where you're going to live in a body for endless You couldn't have thought of that. And God's, that's what Jesus says. That's what's waiting for us. It's going to be revealed. The salvation revealed to us the last time. Bodies. Okay? So, what does that mean? How does that shape us in the present? Okay? We have the big, solid things. Now the infinitesimal. Now, what do I do? Um, and uh, what Peter describes these Christians that he's uh, writing to as having been born again to a living hope. According to Peter, when you say uh, that I want Jesus' life, you know, I look at what happened to Jesus, I want that to be my life. And you say, I want to identify with him. I want to I hold on to him. I want all that's his to be mine. Then what happens to you is there's this whole new kind of life that happens to you. It's almost like your life is starting again. You're born again. By the way, that's not being born again is not just some kind of Christian. That's all Christians. If you're a Christian, that equals being born again. It's the same. It's an equal sign. So, uh, born again. And, um, and he describes this kind of new life as being uh, like a living hope. As a living hope. Now, um, one of the things that Peter's going to do in this letter is he's going to ask these Christians to do some very remarkable things. So, for example, he's going to say, 
if you have a boss who uh, is abusive, you know, he's unjust, does not treat you well, does not care about your welfare, uh, says things about you that aren't true, um, if you're living in that situation, you, you really don't have any other options. You have to stay in this job, you can't get another job. Um, he says, the way, I want you to actually treat that boss with respect. I want you to speak well of him or her to your coworkers. I want you to bless him, seek, make him happy. Make, make him enjoy life. Make his job easier. Speak, respect him. Respect him. Even though you have, you have no reason to respect him, give him respect. Find ways. Dig through. How are you going to do that? How, how are you ever going to do that? Well, that's difficult. Every week, in and out of the week, the boss is, ah, you did it again, blah, blah. You know, cranky old boss. How are you, gonna, how are you possibly going to go in week after week and do that? Well, um, sorry. Peter says that we've been born again to a living hope. He says that as Christians, we have, you know that whole world that I just described to you, just charged with God's delight and pleasure and all of his goodness? He says that a vision of that whole world is living inside each one of us. Living inside of us is this hope. And it's growing up in us and and it's enlarging us. And we're just, we love all that that is. And so what uh, what he's saying is that every time uh, we taste good food, uh, we have a meaningful relationship. Um, we hear beautiful music. All of that is a hint of that new world that's coming. And so what he's saying to your boss, you, your boss is suffering, he's saying, listen, whenever you're respectful to your country boss, or you give a tasty meal to someone in need, or you build, make friends with someone who's lonely, every time you're doing that, you are sprinkling their life with little pieces of that world. You're giving them little flavors of, of, what, of, of that world. And, uh, because for Christians, Christians are not anti-pleasure. We're not against pleasurable things. We like, we, you know, we don't make pleasure into God. We don't worship sex. We don't worship money and, uh, and food and alcohol. We don't give our lives to these things. But we know that every pleasure that we have is an indication to us that God is good. That God actually wants good for us. Every time we do that, we see that He's charged His world with goodness. That it tells us what God is like. So that's why, in, you know, Screw Tape Letters, which is a book that C.S. Lewis wrote, which is about uh, letters, training letters from a senior demon to a junior demon on how to tempt people. Uh, the senior demon says to the, the younger demon, "Make sure that your patient never has any real pleasures." Don't let him read a book that he actually likes to read or go on a walk and look at the sky. And don't let him do that. Because every time there's a real pleasure happens, uh, your patient is getting in touch with reality. Your patient is getting, coming in contact with the goodness of who God is. And you don't want that. You don't want him to see how, God, how good God is. And, uh, you know, Psalm 119.32 says that um, I will run in your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will run in your commandments, God, when you enlarge my heart. And the way God is enlarging our hearts is He's putting a whole new world in there, full of God's delights, full of God's presence, a vision of that, that is expanding our hearts so that we we can't help but want to sprinkle people's lives with His goodness, His pleasures, His, His delights. And so when we do that, when we have this solid rock anchored past event, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and an exploded future, what happens is we're going to suffer, we'll be able to suffer remarkable things. 
We're going to be able to bless and love people in remarkable ways that we never imagined. We're going to be able to face temptations that we never thought we'd be able to, to face. So this infinitesimal now is deeply shaped by these two. And uh, it's because God loves us. That's how good He is. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that we are not speculating that You have acted in history. You have worked. And that uh, we have a hope to come that is beyond anyone's imagination, beyond anything that we could have ever dreamed of. Lord, help us to live now, to be faithful, and to follow you, and to trust in those promises, trust in your, what you've done now, um, so that we might love people, that we might serve this community, that we might serve one another. And we ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.